I just want to take a deep breath. Love, agape, the primacy of faith. What does it really mean? If you were going to reduce Christianity, all of Christianity, to one question, what would it be? What do you think the one question that Jared and Michelle would be asking during this whole experience? My 45 years of ministry, I know exactly what that question is. If you're going to reduce Christianity all to one question, the question is very simple. Is it real? Is it all real? God's there. God engages. God's provided a way for us to have a relationship with him like a son and a daughter to a father. There's life after death. There's heaven. There's a kingdom coming. Is it all real? We have our apologetics, and so we defend the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's got to be real. Jesus, the head of the church, who's raised from the dead. We've got our studies and prophecies, and we show the fulfilled prophecies made thousands of years ago, fulfilled in history, in the detail. The book, it's got to be supernatural. It's got to be real. We have our philosophy, and we can reason the very existence of a creator and God, for where else do you find an anchor to purpose and meaning in life? And so we have all our debates. I know I've been involved in a whole lot of them, and from time to time I ask myself the question, and Daryl, who are you trying to convince that it's all real? It was Jesus who said, I've come that you might have life, have it more abundantly, how does one argue? I don't care if you're an atheist, agnostic, antagonist. How does one argue a changed life? Especially when the changed life is your own. But then you get those waves of doubt and you wonder, well, how do I really know my life has been changed? You see, the promise was a changed heart. Ezekiel 36 prophet said that God said I'll rip the old heart out of you remember to the Jew the heart was the deepest thoughts you have the deepest feelings you possess take your heart your your feelings your thought that's your heart and somehow that was to be changed the prophecy was he'd rip off the old heart and he would place the spirit within you and give you a new heart there would be thoughts there would be desires that you never had before and that's the change. But how do I really know my life, my heart, has been changed? Then here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gets right to it. Summary of all the sermons he ever gave when he was on the earth, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the very end of chapter 5, he says something that I think is absolutely not helpful at all. Listen to what he says in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For it is, that's how we know we've been changed. We are now perfect. But I tell you, if that's the standard of the change, my life, I'm in big trouble. But I am so grateful for the first word in the verse, which is therefore. Remember, the therefore is always there for a reason. 
And he's saying, now therefore, based on what I've been explaining to you, therefore, now be perfect. So I would like to know, what has he been talking about? So you go to the beginning of the paragraph, you pick it up in verse 43. And here's where Jesus says those famous statements, you have heard, the scribes have told you this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. You know, the scribes back in the days of Jesus, they would, they would do a little twitsy with the scripture. They would love to add a little, take a little, change it, make it say what they want it to say. People do it to this day. We treat, kind of use the, the Bible like a proof text for our own prejudices. I like what Mark Twain said. He says, you know, it's not the parts of scriptures I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. And when the parts we do understand, we don't like them when they bother us, we want to change them. Well, they've always done that. And here, they make a reference to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And, and the scribes remove a little and they add a little to make it the way they want it to read. So what they removed was, Leviticus 19:18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. They kind of drop the as yourself thing. That, that we value others as we value ourself. And then what they added was this neat little phrase, and hate your enemy. That was never there. Hate your enemy? Where did they come up with this? Well, these uh, Jewish scholars, scribes, they, they would do what many scholars do. They take the word neighbor and they try to define it. And they say, well, what is a neighbor? We're to love our neighbor. Well, they define neighbor as anybody like me. Or anybody like me, and they're like me, I'll like them. So your neighbor is anybody like you, someone you like, and that's your neighbor, you're to love them. So anybody who is not like you, and people that you don't like, you're to hate them. That's why in the Roman history, Jewish folks, they were cast out of Rome because they had a reputation back then of, quote, hating the human race. Because if you weren't Jewish, you, you would hate everybody else because they were your enemy. And God was dishonored. As God is dishonored today when we act the same way. But then Jesus counters this and he says, but, but, I say to you, there's been a supernatural change in you. You've got a, a different heart now. That's how you know this change is real, that this whole Christianity is real and by the way, if you were going to see some supernatural change in your heart, your attitude, the way you think, the way you feel, where might you find it? In your relationship to your friends? I don't think so. Because we all treat our friends the same way. You can be an atheist, you still treat friends the same way. Well, if it's not in the relationship with your friends, it's going to be in our relationship with what? With those we would view as our, our enemies. So he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now this word love is not the word for warm feelings, affection, to trust, to like. I'm so glad the Bible nowhere says I have to like you. The good news, you don't have to like me. See, I, uh, I'm Cajun French, bullheaded French. We just tend not to like anybody. 
But he doesn't have this word love to like, to trust. It's actually the word that has nothing to do initially with feelings or emotions. He says, wait until you feel something. You have some emotion. But rather, it's the word agape. And the word agape speaks of a choice. It's a choice. It's an act of your will. It's your deep thought, deep desire, and your attitude. You make a choice. Now he's going to say, as a believer now, you can make a choice that you really could never make before because of this changed heart. And this choice is what I call WW, worth and well-being. You can make the choice to recognize the worth of another human being because they're created in the image of God and they're worth Jesus Christ to the Father. 1 Peter 1.18, God did not pay a thing for you because he said God did not pay uh, blood, but rather not silver or, or coin, but the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. You do understand, God paid a person, his own son. God so loved the world. Therefore, do we recognize the worth that God has placed on his creation? We recognize the worth. And if we recognize the worth of someone, are we concerned about their well-being? That's what the word love is all about. That's the word agape. To recognize the worth and be concerned about the well-being of another human being for no other reason than they've been created by God. And it's all about the lordship of Christ in my life. But here, they said, hate your enemy. Hate would be just the opposite of love. If love is to recognize the worth, hate is to recognize no worth, to be indifferent. If love means to be concerned about the well-being, then hate is to have absolutely no concern for any well-being for anybody who's not like me or that I like them. It's a bad case of the normals. You say, well, my enemy, he says, well, who's my enemy? He says right here, those who persecute you. Well, nobody really persecutes me. Oh, yeah? Are there some people you don't like? We'll have no testimonies here, just right now. Are there some people you don't like? I'll tell you probably why you don't like them. Because Jesus already told it back in verse 11 of the same chapter. He defined our enemy as, verse 11, blessed are you when men revile you. They say things for the purpose of hurting you. And they persecute you because they say all kinds of things against you. And they falsely accuse you of wrongdoing. And here they do it on account of because you're a Christian. Well, I tell you, see, I have some friends like that. Well, they're not really friends. We, we call them frenemies. I have a lot of frenemies. People who claim and act like they're friends, but in reality, they persecute me, they persecute you, they lie about you, they accuse you, they think negatively of you, they say things to hurt you. By definition, there's your enemy. Could be in your family, outside your family. But what's the response to our enemies? Well, what did we learn in junior high? Seventh grade. When hurt, what? Hurt back. And so it seemed to work pretty well for us all these years. Duh. 
And so therefore, if somebody hurts me, I, my nature, my heart is to hurt them back. But I have this change, this new heart. And instead of right away wanting to hurt them back, he says, love them. Give me a break, Jesus. Am I supposed to manufacture some warm feelings, some affection for people who hurt me? That's not the word. The word is agape. The word is you can now make a choice. So even with all of that, recognize their worth and be concerned about their well-being because of the lordship of Christ. It's a command of Jesus to love. Derek Bonhoeffer was a pastor. He was a theologian. Most of you probably have read his thick, the biography on him. He was um, hanged by a piano wire in Nazi Germany just a couple weeks before the Allied troops got there to where he could have been saved. And yet, while he was in prison, anticipating this, this is what he wrote. This is the supreme demand through the medium of prayer. We go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Now, why would I do that? There's no reason on earth for me to do that. And that's true. There's no reason on earth for me to do that. It'd have to be something supernatural. It'd have to be some supernatural change in my heart that my deepest thoughts, my deepest feelings would somehow give me an attitude that I would be willing to pray. And by the way, you notice he doesn't say, now go trust them, go like them, go be good buddies. No, he doesn't say that. He says, now, you recognize their worth and be concerned about their well-being. How? Make the choice. Even tells you how to do it. Because they know how difficult it's going to be. So he says, pray. You can make a choice to pray. Pray for their well-being. Pray for them. Because when it comes to our enemies and the way we respond to those who are not like us and those we don't like... Apparently, it's going to prove something that there's been a real, real change in your heart. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, in order that, here's the purpose clause, in order that you may be sons, sonship, sons and daughters, 2 Corinthians 6, be sons and daughters of a heavenly father, sonship. He says, in order that you may be sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What's this? He says, do this. Pray for your enemies. Love them. Recognize their worth. And be concerned about their well-being for praying for them. Because in so doing, when the world sees that that's not anything on earth... They're going to realize you are sons and daughters of someone who must be very real to you. Someone who must be very real, like your heavenly father. And not only others could see that the change is real, guess who else can see that they, the change is real? You! Because you know your heart. You know how hard this would be. And the harder it is, the more supernatural it would have to be. I had a lady right there in my office some years ago. 
She was so angry at her husband, she was going to divorce him. She was going to take him for everything he had. She hated him. It's just spewed out. Hated, hated. Probably half of it was justified, but I remember I was listening, and, I, and, 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 and I, I'm not really a counselor. I kind of do the Bob Newhart thing. Just stop it. But um, I listened to her for a while, and then I said, can I ask you a question? I said, I don't know. Help me understand something here. If I had a woman sitting in your chair right there and she was an atheist, hated God, full of bitterness, the ugliest person you've ever imagined, and she was sitting there instead of you. She was sure sound exactly the way you're sounding to me. What's the difference here? As I said, I'm not a very good <laughs> counselor. She didn't seem to appreciate that counsel. Not the first lady who's walked out of my office. <laughs> but notice it says here, your father, your sons and daughters of heavenly father, what's he like? The child reflects the heart of the father. Well, notice Jesus says he, he will raise his son in the morning so that there can be health and warmth and crops and feeding for good people and for what? And for the evil. He will cause his rain to fall. To provide nourishment. And health. And food. For not only the righteous. But also for the unrighteous. You know what Jesus is saying there? This is the very. The weather is the very evidence. That God still loves his enemies. Because most of the world. Is an enemy to God. But God still recognizes their worth and is concerned about their well-being. And beloved, he expects his children to do the same. That's why he had his own son make the command, the command to do so. For this would go beyond what anybody on this earth would ever expect. Notice verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? In this context, they had problems with the IRS as well, all right? We won't even go there, all right? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What's the difference between you and anyone else? Maybe there hasn't been any change. Maybe you've got that old stone heart that you were born with. Or do you? Has there been a change? Comes down to the whole thing. How shallow am I? I know sometimes Holly says, I've got the depth of a thimble, but, but I get by. But sometimes it is. And what she means by that is, remember in the first grade, you do those little notes, put the little boxes. Do you like me? Check box one. <laughs> you get it back? No check. That's all first grade. And yet most people, we live on that level. Like me, I like you. Hurt me, I'll hurt you. Beloved, that's a bad case of the normals. That's life on earth. That's the way it is. But Christianity is real. God is real. And what Jesus Christ did on that cross is real. 
And when he rose from the dead and sent the Spirit of God to change our hearts, this is all real. And the proof that it's real that I actually reflect a heart of my Heavenly Father and I have deep thoughts and I have deep desires I never had before. I want to honor my Heavenly Father. I want to keep the commands of Jesus Christ because He is my Lord. And if Jesus tells me to pray for my enemies, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sit there and think about how I feel about it. I'm just going to obey. I'm going to do what He says. And trust that he will follow with the emotions. He will bring the forgiveness from my heart. He will give me the grace, the patience, the mercy. It's not going to come from me. It's going to have to come from him. But it's not going to come from him until the moment I obey the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. And I have this new heart with a desire to do so. And that's why Jesus then ends with, therefore. Since your Father in heaven loves his enemies. And you want to prove that you're a child of your Father in heaven. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, it's not what you think. It's not like our English word of perfection. The word is teleos. Teleos is the end of something. It describes one who has been fully grown, mature, grown up. It speaks of a student who has matured. Something was perfect when it reached its designed end. When it was designed to do something and it reached it and was actually doing what it was designed to do, that's teleos. And as the Heavenly Father does what he does because of who he is, he expects his children to become what they were designed to be from the very beginning when they were created in his own image. Do you understand that? Angels do not have the image of God. Animals do not have the image of God. Genesis 1.27, we're created in the image of our creator. That means we can reflect realities about the one who created us. And so we've been designed to do so. Here's the deal. If you're not loving, if this isn't the primacy of your faith, then you're not following Jesus Christ, no matter what you say. Today's culture talks a lot about love. Contemporary musicians sing about it. Romance novelists, they write about it. Valentine's Day celebrates it. Reality television tries to manufacture it. The Bachelorette, give me a break. <laughs> talk shows talk about it. But we remain unconvinced that the love we sing about and write about and celebrate and manufacture and talk about is in fact a kind of love that doesn't seem to transform people and prove nothing. Viktor Frankl, Jewish man, not a believer. Brilliant neurologist, psychiatrist. He was captured by the Germans and he was put in the German concentration camp, Auschwitz. Later, he was transferred to Dachau. That's better. He, he, he later wrote this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
the epitome of his life's work as a neurologist, psychiatrist, observing human behavior. He writes this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And this is what he concludes, and I quote, A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw truth as it is in song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth. That love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. That salvation of man is through love and in love. I love it when man discovers what Jesus had talked about 2,000 years ago. I was watching a television special on PBS, a documentary on happiness. The title of it was Happy. What they did was they did a study around all the different nations and people groups around the earth to find out who was happy and who was not happy. Groups of people. The most happiest people on earth apparently live in Denmark. Some of the most miserable people on earth apparently live here in the United States. What's interesting to me is how they discovered the truth that has been around from the very commands of Christ. Here's their truth. This was their insight. Here's their explanation. You do know PBS, not a Christian television program. All right? Here's their insight. When people care for the well-being of others, they're the happiest. And here's why. They say because when human beings focus on themselves, we only think of what we're missing. Now let that sink in. When I'm only thinking about myself, I'm only thinking about all the stuff I don't have. All the things I am missing. But when human beings focus on others, they think only of what they have to offer. What they have to offer. And when human beings are thinking about what they have to offer others, is when human beings are the happiest. I thought Jesus called this agape, to recognize the worth and be concerned about the well-being of others. When it all comes down to one thing, this is Christ-likeness most clearly seen. Been ministering 45 years. I've debated things, I've been all over the place, but I'll tell you, in this last season of my life, what do I got, 15 years? Don't, that's not morbid, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is all yours. 15 years. I, this is my last season of my life, it's all coming together for me. This is the primacy of faith. It all comes down to Christianity is real, and it's real because it's changed me, and I've been changed because I have this new heart. It was the Apostle John. John was nicknamed with his brother one of the sons of thunder. This guy had temper and hate was part of who he was. For example, in Acts, he and James and Jesus are going through Samaria. Samaritans are a little rude to Jesus 
It is John who says, Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven and make post-toasties of all these Samaritans. And this is really a hot, hot little guy. But it's interesting. Later, his disciples nicknamed him the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved him because he's hot-tempered and angry and hateful, right? No, 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 no. Something changed in that man's heart. As a matter of fact, John chapter 19 is literally an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. You want to know why it's an eyewitness? Because John's the only apostle that followed Jesus to the very foot of the cross. Saw the whole thing, wrote it down. As you know, John, of course, ends up, Domitian throws him over in uh, exile on Patmos and he receives a visit from Jesus in the book of Revelation. But Domitian is assassinated. John gets off the island. He goes back to his home church in Ephesus. And for the rest of his life, he's like the bishop there in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, over these seven churches who had received those seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Jerome, the ancient church father Jerome, writes and tells us that when John the Apostle was so old, they literally carried him from church to church to church. People packed the houses because they wanted to hear, this is John? the last living eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus? Boy, bring your notebook and recorders, pay the $50 ticket, and we want to hear this guy. So people would pack these gatherings because they wanted to hear, what would he tell us? Then all he would say is, little children, love one another. He repeated three times. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I know it's like what some of you are saying, going, yeah, I got it, I got it, love, love, love. But give us the good stuff. What did Jesus say? What, what did he eat for breakfast? He was pressed. They wanted to know why he would say no more to the question. Because he would say no more. And he would say this, for this is his commandment. And when this is done, it is all sufficient. Remember the commission Jesus gave in Matthew 28 when he said, now go into all the world and as you go into the world, disciple, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let them confess their faith they belong to Jesus Christ. And then remember the second part of simple, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. Sometimes you just gotta ask one more question in your Bible study. And the one more question is, and what did he command? And Jesus made it most clear in John 13, 34, and 35. This I command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another, for by this all men, all men, and you included, will know you are my disciples. And the whole thing's real. In chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Chapter 15, Jesus says, as I keep my Father's commandment, you keep my commandments if you abide in my love. And then he says this at the end of chapter 15 and 16, and this is my command. Love one another. Love one another. The first hundred years of the church, they got it. Paul. First book he writes, Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says... <laughs> You want to fulfill the whole law? I mean like all 10? You want to fulfill the whole law? Sure I do. 
Paul says, then love your neighbor as yourself. James, he's the head of the church in Jerusalem. A lot of persecution going on. And James, in James chapter 2, verse 8, says, you want to keep the royal law of God? Yeah, I've been pretty busy trying. Let me think James says. Love your neighbors yourself. It's the primacy of faith. It's the mark of the change. As a matter of fact, John, it's one thing I do like about getting older. You just don't care anymore people getting mad at you. <laughs> and John's pretty black and white on this thing, and he just says this. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God has been manifested in us. So we love as he loved us. Hmm. This is the change. This is the mark. This is how we know the whole thing is real. This is how Jared and Michelle knew that little Ryan is going to be just fine. And one day in the kingdom, they're going to meet a beautiful young woman. Because they know it's all real. Because they know their heart has been changed. And so I, during my 25 years, I, I always ended with the benediction, walk worthy. You do it long enough, you get a bookstore named after it. <laughs> but you know, I, I want to leave folks with a different benediction these days. The benediction I want to leave now is simply this. And may it be said of us, they loved and made Jesus Christ known. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're going to pick this up next week because there's so much more to say. Is it possible that the clearest, clearest view of Christ's likeness, the goal of our faith, is understanding the grasp of this loving one another, loving our neighbors, ourselves. Lord, could it all come down to that? Have we been so distracted by debates and arguments, trying to prove it's all real, when all along, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's the change in our hearts. It's the change in our lives. It's the fact that we love. We recognize by choice the worth of others that you've set upon them. And Lord, we deeply desire their well-being. So we even begin to pray for those who we do not like. Those who are so unlike us. Because Father, this would be so supernatural and so different. Answer our prayer, I pray, Lord, because I know it's your will. And I know this is what Jesus Christ would be asking you. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said... <laughs>